All right. Well, um, today's message is coming from Matthew chapter 12. And we've been dealing, we've been going verse by verse through the book of Matthew. If you haven't been with us, we're just going to jump back in where we picked up. And um, wanted to check in with everybody, see uh, how's the quarantining going. Um, I'm sure that in your home, your household, you're experiencing no conflict. That just having everybody under the same roof uh, constantly has just been great. That tomorrow when you start online schooling, it's going to go without a hiccup. Your kids are just all going to sit at their desks and work quietly until they're completed. They've just been sharing toys uh, very kindly and patiently. I'm, I'm trusting that's everybody's experience, right? Uh, no, I think that in a, in a season of economic uncertainty, I'd imagine if there's job security for anybody out of this, it's going to be the marriage and family counselors uh, and maybe those who are running the insane asylums as we are going to be with each other, especially now in the next couple of weeks uh, for a long period of time. Um, we are certainly facing conflict in over this uh, coronavirus. And not only that, but over over the reaction to this virus, how to handle this new reality that we're all living in, that we're staying at home, that our jobs are in crisis, that our hospitals are overwhelmed. For many of us experiencing isolation and loneliness like never before, literally life and death situations all over the planet. So how do we deal with conflict? What does this look like in our lives? Well, as always, we want to look to Jesus. We want to say, how, how would he have us handle conflict? How did he handle conflict? And we're going to see that in today's story. Now, in the book of Matthew, we're seeing Matthew wants his audience to know that Jesus is the king. He is the rescuer of the whole world, the hope that comes from what he is and what he's done. And now in chapter 11, though, we started to see that there's some pushback against the kingdom message that Jesus is bringing. We're seeing um, a growing conflict and rejection um, against Jesus. We saw it last week with the crowds, and it's going to continue to build until it crescendos at the cross where his own people kill him. This week, we're going to see opposition with the Pharisees in one of their most epic showdowns with Jesus. And we're going to see three types of conflict they're going to have, or three areas. They're going to see conflict over the Sabbath. We're going to see conflict over Satan. And then finally, we're going to see conflict over signs. So Matthew chapter 12, follow along. We'll have the verses on the screen. The first is the conflict over the Sabbath. Now, as we see here in verse one, it says, at that time, Jesus went through the grain fields on the Sabbath. His disciples were hungry and they began to pluck heads of grain uh, and to eat, which of course is everybody's favorite snack. And then it says, verse two, when the Pharisees saw it, they said to him, look, your disciples are not doing, or, or excuse me, are doing what is not lawful to do on the Sabbath. Now, it's important to see here, and we've highlighted it, this is on the Sabbath. That was Saturday for the Jewish people. Um, it was the most important day of the week on their calendar. The Sabbath was a gift of God to his people, his chosen people. And they would stop working one day a week. They worked six back then, didn't get the kind of weekends that we do now. And they would pause to remember that they were created for him. They were created to worship God and to rest in his provision to them, not based on what they could provide for themselves. This was a way to see that God's love for them was not based on what they did, but on who they were, not on their work that they accomplished, but the fact that they were his children. It was this beautiful pause in their weekly rhythms. But the Pharisees, they went and hijacked this, and they, they made a burden out of 
adding hundreds of rules and strict interpretations of exactly what it meant to keep that Sabbath. And one of the ways they did this was they actually had 39 uh, different explicit rules that said, here's the kind of work that you can't do on the Sabbath. And one of those was reaping. Now you see here, it says the disciples plucked the heads of the grain and and they ate it. Now, interestingly enough, there is a specific verse in the law that says what they're doing is totally legit. It's in Deuteronomy 23, 25. It says, if you go into your neighbor's standing grain, you may pluck the ears with your hands, but you shall not put a sickle to your neighbor's standing grain. So it says, if you're just taking it for a small meal, that's totally cool. But don't bring the sickle. In other words, don't come farming through their fields and just take over, right? That's my farming uh, dance. But the, the, the point here is the, the disciples actually aren't violating God's law. In fact, it says that he could. But what's interesting here is, is Jesus, he could have argued the point with the disciples and crushed them because he's, or excuse me, with the Pharisees, because he is God and they are dumb. But he doesn't do that. Look at what he does. He, Jesus always sees the heart. He knows what they're really arguing about. And one of the principles that we have, we see here in handling conflict, is you always step back and go, what is it really about? Because the reality is when we're arguing with somebody, it's never about what it's about. So if you're fighting with your spouse about the dishes, doing the dishes, it's not about the cleanliness of dishes, right? It's a deeper issue. Am I concerned about people in my life, in my household, other than Justin, right? That's a purely hypothetical. I do the dishes all the time, right? I'm just... What a husband. But the point is, for those of you who don't always do that, um, ask yourself what that's major on the majors. Get below the symptoms to the disease. And Jesus sees here, and the question is not about the, the argument. They're not mad because he's, he's, he's eaten the grain. There's a deeper heart issue here. And what we see in Pharisees, the issue is they don't believe Jesus is who he says he is. And he knows that's the issue. And so how he responds is not arguing over the heads of grain. But he pushes back and reminds them of the three central roles that Jesus came to be for us. We're going to see him talking about that he's a prophet, he's a priest, and he's a king. First of all, we're going to see him address that Jesus is the true king. Now look at verse 3. He said to them, have you not read? Which I love this because these guys, their whole job was to read the Torah and interpret it. So this is like somebody coming up to me and going, hey, pastor, don't you read the Bible? right? That you preach every single week. So this is a burn, right? Jesus is full of these. He says to them, haven't you read what David did when he was hungry and those who were with him? So before David was enthroned as king, he's running from King Saul, who is jelly with a capital J. And on the run, he gets hungry because he's moving from place to place. And this is what happens. He entered the house of God and ate the bread of the presence, which it was not lawful for him to eat. It was not lawful for him to eat, nor for those who were with him, but only for the priests. He goes, don't you remember? So David goes into the house of God and the priest gives him the, the bread of presence or the show bread that was only reserved for worship of God. And then after that, the old bread could only be eaten by the priests. It was very explicit in Leviticus. Now, what Jesus is pointing out here is their hypocrisy. What he wants to show them is as he compares himself with David, he goes, you love your boy, David. That is the the Jew of all, like Abraham and David. And he goes, with David, you didn't condemn him. You know the story. And in in that case, he was guilty. He ate bread that was not for him to eat. And he broke the law very clearly. But here I come and you do condemn me. And I'm innocent. I did not break the law. All I broke was your silly little traditions. And what he wants to point out is you are not being consistent, you silly little men. But the bigger point here that he's trying to, the reason he brings out David is to show I'm the true and better David. 
Remember, all the prophecies were pointing toward the son of David that would come, the chosen Messiah who would rule and reign over Israel and through Israel over the entire world. Here's the promised one. And what he says is, I'm the reality to David's shadow, but you're rejecting the reality while you still embrace the shadow. He says, don't you realize that I'm the true king in whom you will find your true rule. You are rejecting your true king. The second point he wants to bring out is that I'm also the true priest. Look at verse five. This is his next argument. Or have you not read in the law, again, read it, how, how on the Sabbath the priests in the temple profane the Sabbath and are guiltless? I tell you, something greater than the temple is here. So Jesus says, don't you realize, you guys that are so worked up about nobody working on the Sabbath, the priests, they work every Sabbath. In fact, it's the work of the priests, the sacrifices, interceding for the people that allows you to find your rest. It's like me on Sundays. I'm up here preaching, working, working my, my tail off, and you guys are all on your recliner sipping lattes, right? I don't know if that's fair. Um, Jesus says, don't you get it? Don't you read what, what you say you read? There are exceptions to this rule about rest, and it's the priests who are that exception. But the, again, the bigger picture here is he wants to show, I'm greater than the priests. In fact, I'm greater than the temple itself. Remember, Jesus is the embodiment. The temple is where God and man would meet, and the priests were the one that would connect them. He goes, I am now, I am the meeting place, not a building. My body, me. I'm the go-between between God and man, the connector. And in fact, I'm the true sacrifice as well. It, it's because of my sacrifice for you that's coming up in less than two years now that you'll be able to enter into the presence of God. Jesus is the true priest. We're going to talk about transcending this call to not work on the Sabbath. It's him and who we find our rest. And listen, the reason that we can find rest, and this isn't just one day a week. In Christ now, the rest that we've been given, that he talked about at the end of chapter 11, you, you who are burdened and heavy laden, we can find in Jesus, not just one day a week, but 24-7, 365, we can rest from our work and into who we are in Christ and what he's doing on our behalf. But the last one he wants to show is that he's also the true prophet. He's the true prophet. Look at verse 7. And if you had known what this means, I desire mercy and not sacrifice, you would not have condemned the guiltless. Jesus here is quoting Hosea 6. And what was happening in Hosea's day is the same thing was happening in Israel's day. Their leaders were focused much more on outward rituals of the law, like sacrifices, than they were the heart of God's law, which was to love people. What did he say sums up my commands? Love the Lord your God and love your neighbor as yourself. Show mercy. That's what it means to keep my law. And what we see from Jesus, he illustrates this in the next story. Look at this. He says, he went on from there and entered their synagogue. And a man was there with a withered hand. And they asked him, is it lawful to heal on the Sabbath? Now again, why are they asking this? Matthew tells us, so that they might accuse him. There's something deeper in their hearts. He said to them, which one of you has a sheep if it uh, who has a sheep, if it falls into a pit on the Sabbath, will not take hold of it and lift it out. So what's his point here? He's telling them, look, uh, he's once again exposing their hypocrisy and selfishness. If you have an animal that belongs to you and it falls into a pit, magically your fancy little rules don't apply to you getting your animal out of the pit. But here you are condemning me for doing good to a child of God. Don't you see the inconsistencies here? Now, just like when they saw that his, him and his disciples were hungry, they'd rather hold on to those traditions and have Jesus have to skip a meal, right? A lack of mercy here. And don't forget, there's a man with a withered hand in the picture here. 
And the, 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 this, the Pharisees do not see him as a person. They see him as bait just to try to catch Jesus, accuse Jesus. Jesus is the one that sees this man as a human with compassion, someone who is in need. He says, these are my sheep that I came to rescue out of the pit. And Jesus' point here, he says at the end of verse 12, um, of how much more value is a man than a sheep? It, so is it not lawful? It, so it, it is lawful to do good on the Sabbath. He says, you want to you keep the heart of God's command? Human need is much more important than outward ritual sacrifice. It's driving to church, seeing someone on the side of the road in the freezing winter broken down and said, nope, I'm supposed to go to church instead of stopping and showing mercy to the one who's in need. Now, it's funny because I picture the man with the withered hand. I don't know. We don't have video, but I picture this withered hand here. And here's this man with withered hand watching this argument, like a ping pong match, right? And he's like, hey, um, are we going to, like, do we forget the whole thing about my withered hand here? Are we just going to argue all day? Jesus did not forget about the man. In verse 13, it says, then he said to the man, stretch out your hand. And the man stretched it out and it was restored, healthy like the other hand. But what I love here is Jesus commands this man to do something. What does he say to do? Stretch out your hand. That's the very thing that he can't do. And what a beautiful reminder here that anything Jesus asks us to do is through his healing power and grace that we can do it. So when Jesus says, go love your neighbor, he's going to provide us the ability to love them, to be able to be patient with a person that drives us crazy. And when he says, don't be afraid during this pandemic, he says, why? Because I didn't give you a spirit of fear. My spirit in you is one of power and love and sound mind. So when I say, stretch out your hand and love, open your heart and don't fear, I'm going to give you the ability to do what I'm asking you to do. Two, uh, two principles that we see here as well. The first one, um, that we are to prioritize people over possessions. When it comes to handling conflict, we prioritize people over possessions. Um, Man, I, we, we've, of course, seen all of the hoarding that's been going on in this time period as people are taking and taking and taking and thinking, I will provide all my needs. I'm going to sit ensconced in toilet paper, and this is the reason this is fine. Because I have enough toilet paper. I have enough hand sanitizer. Apparently, ground beef, you can't buy that at the store because that's how everybody's going to you know, survive. I don't know. Anyway, um, are, we, are we driven by fear? And we need to have fear about our finances, fear about um, our job loss, the trips we've had to cancel, um, the sports we can't watch, or are we trusting the Father to provide all of our needs? And if that is the case, then we're free to think about people and not our own possessions. In this time period, we shouldn't be majoring on our stuff and having that false sense of security in those things, but how can we love others and meet their needs? The other part that's kind of related to that is prioritizing relationship over ritual. Relationship over ritual. I think one of the things that I've loved in this time period is it's caused us to remember what the church really is, or who, who, who I should say, who the church really is. We need to be the church in the time period. It is not, we're not a building. If, if church is just once a once a week service with a 35 minute sermon, sick thongs, announcements, and bad coffee, I'm just Alan actually makes great coffee. So we'll strike, strike that from the record. That's a sad, that's a sad picture of what church is. It's not just about the outward ritual of going to a building. It's about relationships. It's about making disciples, about bringing the dead to life, the lost to be found, the blind to give in sight. And we've got to ask ourselves, how are we to continue to be the church in this time period? 
And some of the simple ways we can do that, just be thinking about people. Yesterday afternoon, Jill and I went on a little walk in our neighborhood and just prayed for the neighbors as we walked through it. Those that we've met, we prayed for them by name. Those that we did, we just prayed for that household. Just be thinking about your neighbors. Uh, maybe those, we, we, listen, we are more lonely and isolated than we ever have been. But God bless the technology that he's given us that we can reach out. Are you reaching out to your family, your friends, your loved ones? This is the time when we need to be connected in, in our community um, and, and be thankful for that quality quarantine time that you're being given at home. Right now, kids might be driving you crazy, but the reality is someday we want to look back and go, man, what a sweet time that the Lord gave us to spend with our loved ones, to be able to press into those relationships when we're usually going a million miles an hour. How do we generously meet the needs of the people, the relationships in our lives? But Jesus, once more, is asking an even deeper question, making a deeper cut on the Pharisees. He says, I am better than you are. Your interpretation of the law is whack. Mine is much, much better. In this story, ironic, it's the accusers, the Pharisees, who end up standing accused. Or, excuse me, end up standing guilty where it is, the, it is Jesus and his disciples that were accused that end up being declared innocent. According to who? According to Jesus. And who does he think he is? He says in verse 8, the Son of Man is Lord of the Sabbath. Jesus is God. Who's the one, whose idea was the Sabbath? Who, who, who declared the law? The Word made flesh. He goes, this is my Sabbath. I'm the one who gets to say what, what is good and what is not good, what's keeping it and not keeping it. I'm the one who decides who's sinning and who is not. This is, it's me, not you bozos. I interpret the Sabbath because I am the Lord of the Sabbath. It's from me. It is for me. I'm the one in charge. Jesus reminds them, I'm the true prophet. I'm the true prophet in whom we find our true revelation of God's word. Do you want to know the heart of God? Look no further than the Son. He's the one that tells us what it looks like to follow the God, God's heart. Now, ultimately, what did Jesus say the Sabbath is good for? It's to do good. It's to do good. And he's showing them to heal other people, to restore, to bring back to, to that which is torn apart and asunder. And he actually says, you're doing the opposite. The story ends, but the Pharisees went out and conspired against him how to destroy him. Jesus is the one bringing back what has, been, what has been rent apart, whereas they're the ones who are ripping things apart and trying to destroy. And, and if you thought this was bad, the conflict is just about to get cranked up to 11. Let's look at the next point, conflict over Satan. Now, for time's sake, we're going to summarize this next section. Uh, the Pharisees, they see Jesus casting out demons and this is how they respond to watching him do that. Verse 24, but when the Pharisees heard it, they said, it is only by Beelzebub, which is the name of Satan. It means the Lord of the flies. It was kind of a flippant term. If you've read the book, um, that's, that's where that name comes from. The prince of demons that this man casts out demons. Now, what they're saying here is the, the, the power from which he is casting out these demons is from Satan. It's not from God, which, to which Jesus responds, that doesn't even make sense. Why would Satan be driving out his own little minions? Think about a construction worker. If you got a contractor who looks at his workers and goes, hey, you know what the best way to, to, to build our house would be? And he just brings in a wrecking ball and tells them just to demolish what, everything we've been building. It's like, how does that make sense? You wouldn't destroy the very thing that you're trying to build. Jesus says, no, no, no. I've come to defeat Satan, not to help him. 
And then he draws this sharp line in verse 30. He says, whoever is not with me is against me. And whoever does not gather with me scatters. He says, you've got two options. You can believe that I am the true king, prophet, and priest, or you can not believe it. There's no middle ground. You're for me or you're, for, you're against me. And what the Pharisees are showing here is they are for sure against him. That context that we launch into the next two verses, some of the most debated and controversial in the Bible. So here we go. Verse 31. Therefore, I tell you, every sin and blasphemy will be forgiven people, but the blasphemy against the spirit will not be forgiven Now, there's been a lot of conversation and bad information on what the unforgivable sin is. People will say, is it divorce or is it some form of lust? And we kind of treat it like it's like a sin minefield. It's like, we just don't want to step on the unforgivable one, right? Did it, was that the wrong one? Did I go, you know, and we kind of freak out about that. But let's read it in context here. The Pharisees have this indisputable evidence about Jesus's power. They have seen clearly that he is healing, um, that he is, he is casting out demons. He is fulfilling prophecy. And what they realize is if they acknowledge that what he's doing is from God's spirit, then they also have to accept his message, that he's the king, and they have to follow him. And they don't want to do that. So what they say is if you can't speak against the power, which is indisputable, what you can do is speak against the power's source. And that's exactly what they did. This is from Satan, not from God. Now, the word blaspheme here means to speak against. They're speaking against the Spirit of God that's at work. And, and what it says in verse 32 is when, when whoever speaks a word against the Son of Man will be forgiven, but whoever speaks against the Holy Spirit will not be forgiven, either in this age or in the age to come. So you go, wait a second. So why can I speak against the Son of Man, which is Jesus, but not against the Spirit? Well, do you remember last chapter? What did John do? John was questioning, John the Baptist, Jesus' forerunner, was questioning, wait a second, are you the one to come or not? You see, it's one thing to dispute whether Jesus was from God or not. It's one thing to speak against him. Is this the true Messiah? We don't know. We, we don't know that this is the right evidence. But once the evidence was revealed, when they clearly saw the Spirit's power, when they clearly see the prophecies being fulfilled and make an outright rejection and say, this is not from God's Spirit. This is Satan. He says, that will not be forgiven. So this is how I would summarize the unforgivable sin. It's attributing God's work to Satan. That's what the Pharisees are doing. It's an active hardening of the heart and an outright rejection of the work of God's spirit through Jesus. So I want to say this. For those who are afraid of committing the unforgivable sin, if you're afraid of that, that's actually evidence you haven't done it. <laughs> This, this isn't, the, it's not saying, oh, you've done too many bad things and that's the last one. It's an amount. It's not doubting. It's not struggling. It's an outright rejection of the Spirit's revealed truth. Now you might say, well, doesn't Jesus forgive all sins? He does. He forgave every single one at the cross. But when we, like the Pharisees, choose to reject truth, because that's the Spirit's job. He came to reveal all of truth. And what did Jesus say? I'm the truth. It's not, listen, it's not just that you won't be forgiven. It's that you can't be forgiven. Why? Because you have just cut off the very source from which forgiveness comes. I love N.T. Wright gave a really helpful illustration. He says, if you're in the desert and you're dying of thirst and, and you declare the only remaining water bottle there with water is poisoned, you say, that source would actually kill me. It wouldn't save me. 
what have you just done? You've condemned yourself to dying of thirst by rejecting the only thing that can save you. You see, this isn't someone rejecting God, or excuse me, this isn't God rejecting someone who's out sin's grace. This is someone who's rejecting that grace of God. And God does not force us to believe. He, 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 does, not, he does not force us to come to him and accept. He doesn't force the water down our throats. So take heart here. Take heart in what he's not saying, but also take heed. We, we don't want to skim over this. We want to hear the warning that there's no neutral ground here. And we want to make sure, are we believing the truth or are we starting to hard our, harden our heart? Because it always starts slowly and builds. We do not want to get to the point where we're rejecting the Spirit's truth. That we are, Because he says, you're either for me or you're against me. There is no neutral ground. There's no coasting. You're either actively scattering against Jesus or you are gathering with him. So which one is it for you? And the last one, which is conflict over signs. We do not have time this morning. So I just encourage you, we put a couple notes in the... Um, and the handout you can get online. I encourage you to read this portion on your own. But um, long story short, this does not end in a group hug. This is Jesus condemning the Pharisees, which will continue to build until Matthew uh, chapter 23. But what, what I, I skipped a section of verses, and this is where I want us to land the plane this morning. Um, we look at this beautiful passage in the middle of this chapter, which I think everything else is built around, and it's going to show us how Jesus handled conflict. Five principles, and then we'll be done. In verse 14, it says that the Pharisees went out and conspired against him how to destroy him. The, the Pharisees are huddled up going, how do we destroy Jesus? And how does he respond. And this is timely because we too are facing a conflict today. We are facing destruction, not by the Pharisees, but by a virus and our fear of that virus. So let's learn from our teacher and savior as we face a conflict on our own. The first principle is to avoid unnecessary conflict. Avoid unnecessary conflict. He's heard that they are seeking to destroy him. He knows their hearts. And it says, Jesus, aware of this, withdrew from there. He left. Now, this is obviously not out of fear. This is out of wisdom. He saw growing opposition, and he knew that his presence there would only incite more riots and opposition. That's not what he's here to do. And he quote, the, the next verses are a quotation from Isaiah chapter 42. And down in verse 19, it says, He will not quarrel or cry aloud, or will anyone hear his voice in the streets. A bruised reed he will not break, and a smoldering wick he will not quench. Jesus didn't come to pick fights. And here are these pompous, petty, jealous jerks who are trying to do everything they can to get in the way of what Jesus is trying to accomplish. He didn't whine about it. He says he didn't cry aloud, God, the Pharisees are at it again, right? He didn't, he didn't whine. He, he didn't argue with them, which again, he could have whooped them at an argument. He didn't fight violence with violence, either in speech or deed, and he did not lose his temple. Or <laughs> he is the temple. He didn't lose his temper. You see, Jesus could have easily, and I'm thinking, Jesus, you should just baptize them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Like, that's what I would have done if these guys were picked by with me, right? And he could have, hey, Father, zap them with lightning bolts. That wouldn't have been a problem. We need to look to Jesus' example that he avoided this unnecessary conflict. And I think about in our time today, um, as we look at social media, we look at the news today that all the arguments, all the whining, all the complaining, the endless debates. I love those of us who are pandemic experts because we've read two Facebook articles and now we think we know everything. And, and we are not, listen, we're not here to argue and fight and whine. We are here to show people Jesus' love 
be the process of bringing together, not tearing apart. So if it's unnecessary conflict, doesn't mean we don't speak truth and love when we need to. Jesus was very bold, but we don't pick fights for the sake of picking fights. Second, second principle, trust God's promises, plan, and perfect timing. There's another reason Jesus withdrew. Look at what it says. Jesus, aware of this, withdrew from there, and many followed him, and he healed them all and ordered them not to make him known. Now, what's interesting here is Jesus withdraws from the Pharisees, and then as he heals people, he tells them, keep it on the down low. And why does he want them to do that? It's not God's time yet. There's going to be a time when he's going to incite plenty of riots. There's a time when he'll get to the point where they kill him. But he says, that's going to happen on God's watch, not on man's watch. He came to fulfill God's promises. God has a plan for him, and he has perfect timing. We see this, that he's fulfilling prophecy even in this. It's to fulfill what was spoken by the prophet Isaiah. And what is Jesus here to do? Well, look at what Isaiah said about Jesus. Behold my servant. This is from the voice of God. Whom I have chosen, my beloved, with whom my soul is well pleased. I will put my spirit upon him. Jesus knows very clearly who he is. My father has given promises to the world through me. He has a plan and he has perfect timing in the way he's going to execute that plan. And we need to remember this, that we, our identity is found in Christ, that he also has a plan for you, that he has a promise. He has a whole horde of promises that he's made to you that he will keep. And he has perfect timing that a coronavirus, there's nothing that throws that off. It doesn't throw a monkey wrench into his plans. And we have to remember who we are in Christ, chosen and loved by God, not based on what we've done, but on who we are in him and that we have his spirit in us, that he'll keep us. And because Jesus rested in that promise, plan and perfect timing, the next principle is that he kept his eyes on the prize. Jesus it was prophesied and said he will proclaim justice to the Gentiles. And in verse 20, he, he, until he's going to do this, until he brings justice to victory, Jesus says, I know why I'm here. He had a focus on his mission and there was nothing that distracted him. He never wavered. He didn't freak out. He didn't give up. He kept his eyes on the prize. In this day, we need to remember that even though we're not physically gathering, our mission is the same. That We've been called to go out and make disciples. We've been called to love our neighbor as ourselves. The mission has not changed one iota to keep our eyes on the prize like Jesus did. And part of what this mission accomplishes is to not fearfully take, but obediently love and give. Look at what Jesus did. He withdrew from the Pharisees, but he didn't stop healing people. Everyone who came to him, he healed. See, trials reveal character. And what we see in Jesus's character here is he continues to put people in front of himself. He didn't freak out. He didn't socially distance himself from the people who needed healing. And, and what we see, man, in this time period, we have seen our own fear and control issues come out like never before. As you go to the supermarket and see World War III, you see people doing touchdown dances because they have some paper towels, right? It's ludicrous. It's crazy. But it reveals our character. Jesus wants us to remember there is an opportunity here like never before. And just like he obeyed his father, healed and spoke truth and love, we need to see this as an opportunity, not since 9-11 has there been a, a time when the harvest is this ripe. Having conversations we've been having with people, there's a perspective, there's a question about our own, how fragile we are, about what all of this means. Some of the conversations I've been able to have on the phone with some of our own body, some of the, some of the people who have been streaming church service that have never come to church before, let us keep our eyes on the prize and say, how can we give the love of Jesus, not take and hoard for ourselves? The last principle is to hope in one name alone. 
I love the ending of this prophecy. It says, and in his name, the Gentiles will hope. Jesus remembered what was spoken of him from long ago. And he kept doing what the father told him to do. And I'm so glad he did. Because he did what he did, we have hope today. (laughs) Because he lives, we can face tomorrow. That's what the song says. Because he lives, all fear is gone. Because we know he holds the future. Life is worth the living. We, the Gentiles, just like the Jews, have hope. And it's not, the hope is not that we'll find a vaccine. The hope is not that we'll be socially distant enough. The hope isn't, well, I, statistically speaking, I won't get the coronavirus. Hope is in a name, and that name is Jesus. It's a hope beyond the grave, whatever happens to us. I'm reminded of Hebrews 12 that says, we keep our eyes fixed on Jesus, the author and perfecter of our faith. And in that chapter, there's this whole horde of witnesses that are cheering us on. Abraham and David, they're the prophets. They're up there saying, you can do it. Keep your eyes on Jesus. Don't let pandemics steal your attention away from Jesus. Continue to trust in him. Hope has a name. And let me ask you, is that where you're putting your hope today? Is that where you're putting your hope today? Father, we come to you. In this moment, you said at the end of chapter 11 to bring our burdens. Today, we're all feeling different kinds of burdens. Some of us, it's fear of the unknown, fear of job loss, fear of our financial situation, the burden of what it looks like to homeschool my own kids, the the burden of, of what it looks like to have all of my rhythms thrown off. Who are we? What are we called here to do? Father, would we be a people that would rejoice in, hope in, not in our circumstances, but in your beautiful name, that Jesus came as our prophet, priest, and king. He did for us what we could never do. And in him, we can have rest in the midst of these crazy circumstances. It doesn't guarantee that it'll turn out the way we want, but Father, we can trust you. Help us to keep our eyes on Jesus. Lord, I confess my own heart. I've been seeing the way that I'm prone to just want to look at the news all day and see the newest counts, but that we would not focus, that that would not steal our attention, that you would keep us in your word, in prayer, eyes fixed on Jesus, in community, that we'd be reaching out to those who share that same hope. Would you hold us together, Father, that we would hope in the name of Jesus. It's in that name that we pray. Amen.